there's a lot of things you start to do when you're in your thirties, you know, you start to ride hybrid bicycles and, and run marathons, I think. (laughs) 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 Hey podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe, seeking to grow better, more profitable location independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Happy Thursday morning. It's the Tropical MBA podcast. This one's at tropicalmba.com slash business models. It's not runway models or hand models that's business models ian or car models or late models or vintage models or how you doing what are you up to i'm doing good hey speaking of tropical mba where are you at where am i at right now and are either of those places tropical i would technically be in mediterranean i would say so i'm in barcelona and i gotta say wow it's a winner you know you've been saying maybe we should hang out in prague this summer and i wrote you an email this morning saying might want to consider Barcelona. Beautiful city. Uh, I can't believe it took me this long to get here. A lot of DCers swear by it. Uh, in particular, Alex and Robert. We had a, a Gento last, the third Thursday of every month, as you know, Ian. Went out to dinner, of course, at an ungodly late hour, which worked well for my schedule. Just charmed by Barcelona. So I don't know. If you're kicking around some travel plans, it's in terms of food culture and things to do and I mean, the streets are so clean and and it's so easy to get around and there's just so much going on. Absolutely charmed. Barcelona is just a wonderful city. I'm glad I took the time to visit. Hey, what's the neighborhood? I can't remember the name of it, but when I was doing some research, talking to uh, Lewis Rockwood and a couple other people that live over there, what's the the name of that neighborhood that you're in? Gracia. Oh, I'm staying in the, the Gothic Quarter right now where sort of most, a lot of the tourism happens, but... Grassi, I think, is the maybe one of the hipper places to stay if you were going to come do the digital nomad thing. Got it. And uh, you've been taking some food tours, is that right? Dan likes to eat. <laughs> Man, it's been a cloud of nom all week long. It's been crazy. I gained a couple pounds. Today, we're going to talk about business models. We're going to talk about four business models that we've been chewing on the last couple of weeks. We're going to replay one of our favorite episodes of all time and and one of our episodes that's helped people to change their businesses the most. You know, there's a a difference between being popular and being effective, Ian, or (laughs) being liked and getting things done or saying something that is meaningful to people and saying something that everybody has something to say about. I think in this case, this is one of our episodes outlining business models where we've gotten emails over the last year saying, hey, I took that episode to heart, I did something about it, and I don't have a job anymore, or I improved my business, or I put a recurring revenue thing on my business. So if so, at the, at the end of this episode, we're going to replay our 1,000 true fans, 100 true customers, 10 true clients uh, episode that we did a year ago. So if you haven't heard that, definitely stick around for that. But let me talk about uh, physical fitness just for a hot second, because I did get down to fighting weight. So it's worth talking about. So in other words, I was as light as I was in high school, again. And it wasn't because of a sickness or any kind of Lent giving up of anything. It was a simple thing. And so, you know, the other day I met this guy who had like a, a ped meter or ped me- what, what do you call these things? Pedometer. You know, these, these guys, they've got all kinds of, you know, IVs hanging off themselves. They're going on the internet and looking at 
pie charts of what's happening. And this is complex, right? You know, you what, how many, what do you put in your protein shake? What do you do here and there? And I'll tell you this, and I want to put this out as a challenge. Name for me the single most effective exercise for judging overall physical fitness. Well, I've argued with guys a lot about this, so this is kind of fun. So I'll put it out there. I had a, I had a guess. I said it was pull-ups. Any Out of all the exercises you could do, if you could judge how many pull-ups somebody could do, that's sort of a, a, a great heuristic for their overall fitness. And so late Q3 last year, I just said, I'm going to do 15 pull-ups by the end of this year. So that was just my goal. And instead of doing the peed meter and the, and the IVs and the square charts and all this kind of stuff, all I did was got to 15 pull-ups. It's the same thing we do in this episode, Ian, is you turn the sales funnel upside down. Instead of starting with low friction, high complexity, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll know by the end of the episode, you just simplify it. There's just one thing you got to do. Get to 15. I don't care how you do it. Give up the pizza if you got to. Go for a jog. Do something. Figure it out. Get to 15. So that's how I got the fighting weight. There's really only two things that can happen here. Either your biceps and your and your arms get like extremely strong because you haven't lost any weight or you lose weight and your arms get maybe just marginally <laughs> stronger. So either way, you're probably winning. I don't know, man. It's just what worked for me. I'll tell you what. The uh, Spanish diet isn't so great for the waistline. It's just too much good food. There's too much amazing things. We talked about it last year. We come here. I'm just on the tour diet all day long. I went to the Prado today in Madrid. I don't know. I'm gushing about this too much, but I saw it was just stunning, and I'm so glad that I hired a guide to take me around. I would have just been staring at oil all day long if I wouldn't have done that. But Dan, I, I appreciate the crisis mode, and I feel like I'm in it a little bit here. You know, it's like <laughs> you get into your 30s and you, you start to you start to think about that weight that you were in high school, and you and you start to think about how impossible it is and how it probably gets even more impossible to get back there. So I appreciate that you're having a bit of a crisis. I'm having one myself over here. Been been riding the mountain bike a little bit more. There's a lot of things you start to do when you're in your 30s, you know? You start to ride hybrid bicycles and, and run marathons, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when we started this show, Ian, we were young. Things have changed, buddy. We're getting up there. <laughs> I don't own a hybrid quite yet, but yeah, I get where you're going with it. Hey, we got a phone call from David Wexler this week from electricfertilizer.com. Let's give it a listen. Hey guys, this is David Wexler of electricfertilizer.com, and I just want to tell you about uh, episode uh, 229 of the podcast, the friends and family one. It really made a big impression on me, especially the point regarding how we tune out of the the regular uh, plugged-in scene, the news and everything, and people look at us strange for not being connected to that world, and it's just, you know, we, we tune into our own world because that keeps us motivated and such. And I just want to thank you guys for everything you do and all the help you've given me through listening to you over all these years. Hey, we love it when you guys call the show. If you'd like to give us a ring, question, comment, anything, it's 888-554-8428. Any other news items, Ian, before we jump into this business model thing? No, I think we get right into it. Uh, actually, no, there's one other thing. Last week, we put a call to action, send in your entrepreneur mobiles. That's a really hard word for me to say. And people have been doing it. So I've got a lot of really nice emails. If you want to continue to send those to Ian at Tropical MBA, greatly appreciated. And if you don't mind, got a little something in store for those photos. Working on something, Dan, for the blog to highlight all these entrepreneur mobiles. And maybe a little bit of information about 
if you're unsure how to get yourself an entrepreneur mobile, how you can make that happen. So please keep sending them in. They've been great. Got a message from Melissa and Tim. They are on a road trip and uh, they sent us in a, a, a photo of their entrepreneur mobile and it's a <laughs> Mazda. It looks like a protege with over 200,000 miles on it. Believe that, Dan. They're on a road trip in their awesome. car with over 200,000 miles. Yes, you too Unthinkable. can do it. You know, it's a generational thing, too, because when, when we was young and when we was growing up, if, if the old man had 85,000 miles on the Ford, the, the whole thing was about ready to blow. And you know that. I mean, oh, we, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're just sweating, just sweating, just like, oh, you don't want it. We don't want to take it on that trip because that'll put it over 90 and the resale value is just going to dump after that. So. Yeah, I think my old man had a Tempo or something, an Aerostar at some point, And he just knew. It was like, yeah, don't get it to ni- Once it clicks over to 90 game over <laughs> but you know now nowadays the cars they're not the same so you got to change with the times man you can't be stuck in your ways you can't be constant remember the 1989 ford tempo and all the horror that it brought to you that's right so ian before we roll this this episode of ours that we did last year i just want to i just want to mention you know one thing that i think we might tweak or update this a little bit. And we talked about this on the episode with Damien talking about the productized service business model. And I think that that's a great approach to the 10 true clients business model. This is a great high friction business model. So basically the whole theme of this episode is, you know, a lot of people online, they're always teaching Ian, like go out and get like, uh, you know, a thousand visitors to your website and then survey them and then figure out what they want. And then, you know, eventually you're going to find your best customers at the bottom of the funnel and you can charge them like a million bucks for something. And what we're saying is, no, that's not how you build a business. Do it the opposite way. Flip it upside down. Start with those 10 true clients. Charge them a lot for what you do and then generalize from there what you do. You know, Somebody sent me, they knew that we run the Dynamite Circle. So they sent me an email that like had like 25 questions or whatever. You know, if you want me to join, you got to, you know, answer all these questions. And I just deleted the email. And I know that's like a crazy prospect for someone who has clients. But for someone who has a product that started with 10 true clients, which the DC did, and has over the years matured as a product and changed, I know whether someone is a good fit for that product or not. I know that a person that has a list of questions like that is not going to get a lot of value out of the product that I've created over the years. So I would agree, Dan, you know, first of all, like, I think that's like a very dated business model. I think to throw up a site and to drive traffic towards a niche and then to hope that you can figure out a way to monetize that traffic, like once it gets there, I feel like that's a very dated kind of uh, business model. I feel that way because I've started some businesses like that. And I feel like there's a much faster way to go about it. And it's the way that we're going about it with Valley Up, in fact. And that is to create as much friction as possible on the front end and actually talk to clients. So this whole thing where like you put up a feeder site and people come to the site and you like really don't know what people are interested in. And I don't know, it doesn't work. I don't, I think it's inefficient. And I think the better way is to go to that person, to go to that customer and say, will you buy this product for $100? If you will, I'll make it. And go to enough people where you feel confident that you can build the product and then just go do it. And then from there, you know, scale your business and it's going to go 10 different ways that you never imagined it would go. But this idea of putting up a site and, and getting unqualified traffic to it and thinking that you're going to figure it out on the back end, it's very inefficient and I would not recommend it. So, you know, the reason I like having the listeners think about the productized service business model 
relative to the 10 true clients. 10 true clients still holds up. It's still very cool. But it's the, the productized service versus a client model where you basically bring people to a desired result, classic client relationship, is similar to the distinction between teaching and instructing. And there might be a reason why teachers are in worn out, you know, khaki corduroys, Ian, is that, you know, sometimes you can be doing a lot of teaching with your clients and you can be having a tough time making a living. And it's not readily apparent that the reason you're having a tough time making a living might be that you have a flawed model. And one of the reasons I like instructing so much more, which is, you know, what the productized service business model basically represents, which is like you come out and you declare what you're going to do rather than meet your clients where, where they're at all the time, right? I'm going to meet you here. I'm going to meet you here. Instead, I can say, hey, here's the result I'm going to give you. Hey, here's the service I'm going to give you every month. And I'm going to tweak that based on your feedback, but that's the service rather than saying, hey, I've got five clients and I do a bunch of stuff that they want me to do. That really, you know, what you're leaving on the ground or or what you're leaving on the table is the long-term asset that you can build by tweaking a generalized product that works for a wide range of people so that down the line, four years from now, you can shake someone's hand and in an instant know whether your product's going to work for them or not. And the opposite, the opposite is what, what, what a client relationship will do is you'll shake that person's hand and you'll say, I can work for that person, you know, right? So like you want to get yourself out of that mindset into the mindset of seeking the more generalized principles, even when it comes to your first 10, 10 true clients. Yeah, Dan, I, you know, like you said at the beginning here, like we've never been client guys. And I think part of it is just, just the way that it scales, you know, and the way that we want to spend our time. Like, you know, I, I want customers and I want customers to interact with our products because in a lot of ways that means that we can get out of the business too. And that provides us with some runway and some lift, you know, if the client is coming to me and you, then they're used to just working to me, with, with me and you. And you know how hard it is to get out of that relationship and still retain those, that money that you're getting from them. Very difficult. What, that's what exactly what I love about this. Even with the 10 true clients business model, this is, this is exactly the thing, Ian, is that the, a lot of the big internet marketers out there, they'll say, yeah, by the time like the thousand people turn into a hundred, turn into 10, you'll want to work with those people. And cause they're going to pay you all this money and they're going to be awesome. It's like, no, you don't, that the whole point was that we didn't have clients, right? This, I say start the opposite way. And and the cool thing about it is, is it never really is that client work at the beginning where you're coming and meeting them. Instead, you're developing a service. Even with the 10 true clients as originally articulated on this episode, it's all about developing a service that brings people to a particular kind of goal in a particular kind of way. That's the kind of thinking that uh, I want to build a business around. So anyway, Without further ado, what do you say we jump into this episode? I hope you find this thinking about business models in this sort of structured way useful. And uh, we'll be back next week with a fresh Tropical MBA podcast. All right. Well, we're all here for some dinner plans, man. We're here for the meat and potatoes. Today, it's episode 158, 1,000 true fans, 100 true customers, or 10 true clients. This is going to be a conversation about business models and how they're critical to defining your way forward and getting success in your business. If this episode leaves you with one thing, it's about the importance of making explicit your business model 
It's the same thing with the, the standard operating procedure. We don't want to be operating implicitly. Right. We want to be explicit about what we feel like we're participating in. It's interesting. Me and you, we sat down uh, before this episode, and we kind of wrote that first, right? And then we both sat, we sat down and thought, what is a business model? <laughs> That's right. So, so well, okay, so let's get to that. Um, but why business models, right? Because business models are frameworks to inspire consistent action into the chaos, right? So the world is this really unclear, uncertain place. And as business owners, we're trying to define modalities or roadmaps so that we can consistently take action and get new information from the chaos and then build out the sophistication of our models. So what is a business model? Whenever a business is established, either explicitly or implicitly, we know which side of the fence we want to be on there, employs a particular model that describes the architecture of value creation, delivery, and capture mechanisms employed by the enterprise. The essence of a business model is that it defines the manner by which business enterprises deliver value to the customers, entices customers to pay for value, and converts those payments to profit. It thus reflects management's hypothesis about what customers want, how they want it, and how an enterprise can organize to best meet those needs and get paid for doing so. That's what we're here for. We want to make a profit so we can stay alive as entrepreneurs, so we can develop these incredible lifestyles that both serve the world and allow us to live in principle the way we want to live. Yes. Thank you, Wikipedia. That's a pretty good definition. Yeah. You know, you could actually, you could start a podcast and just surreptitiously read Wikipedia articles. <laughs> I mean, in fact, that's what we've been doing. Do you ever find yourself doing Wikipedia deep dives? Yeah. I was on Gordon Ramsay's uh, Wikipedia page just yesterday. <laughs> random, right? It's I mean. so random. I can see stuff like, I got a Wikipedia. Oh, I got to yeah. see what's going on. <laughs> so, one of the interesting things, Ian, and I think part of the reason why this 1000 True Fans article that Kevin Kelly wrote has been so infectious in the internet business marketing space. And by the way, we don't think it's the most effective model, and we're going to share a little twist at the end of the episode. Yes. But but first, step by step, the internet has actually created new business models, and it has changed the viability of existent business models. Yes. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really critical, and I have friends whose businesses have died because they didn't understand this. They didn't make this model explicit. Seth Godin calls it the mini monopoly. Mini monopoly, mini monopoly, <laughs> and and the increased importance of this concept of being a mini monopoly on the web. So the web favors business that specialize. There's always been this like implicit specialization in a lot of old school business models. So let's talk about say a brick and mortar shoe company on the corner of Fourth and F. Right? Uh-huh. There's an implicit specialization there because of its location. It's on the corner a fourth and F. And what a lot of business owners have done is they've taken that model and they've plopped it on the internet with a nice logo. And now they're scratching their head saying, why aren't people coming to my shoe store online? Right. Where's the foot traffic That's that right. I got before? Where's the word of mouth that I, uh, that I benefited from in this small town? And basically what Seth Godin is saying is, because of the, the way you know Google is set up, the internet set up to sort of benefit the person that's at number one, it's, it's at an all-time importance to be a mini-monopoly of whatever it is, the best in the world at what you do. That's why you can't just sell shoes on the internet now. You have to sh- be the person who sells dinosaur-inspired shoes. Right. So you have to be the Tyrannosaurus Rex booty guy. That, actually, that's kind of cool. You could wear Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> you could get gloves that fit the... You see where I'm going with this? I don't think it, this isn't for adults. No. <laughs> Don't do this if you're an adult. This is about 
Purple Cow. This is about positioning, remarkability, preeminence, finding a way to dominate one small little corner of specialization, and that's a way you can get traction, eyeballs, and cash flow in a new business online. So, um, uh, by the way, just in passing, another business model that the internet has created is freemium. Yeah. Um, you know, you could not send 100,000 people a DVD uh, for free 15 years ago. Right. Now, you can. So, wow, that's only 15 years ago. We were talking about when I went to college, I'm not that old of a guy yet. I was looking through phone books of universities, and occasionally those phone books would come with a (laughs) CD-ROM. Yeah. Now, you can literally, for $500, make a highly produced video, put it on YouTube, and have hundreds of thousands of people see your university yeah and the difference here is the production costs are very low for this stuff these distribution days. costs in the distribution costs. the distribution costs are even more critical probably you can send your ebook to anybody right, right. and so that's what happens is when the distribution costs are zero and everybody can distri- distribute stuff you have to be focused right and it's the same thing with universities are probably going to find this it's not going to be good enough just to be the university in missouri anymore you're going to have to be the university that creates the best X in right. the world. And you know what? The same thing's going to happen for countries. This is going to have a, a big impact. The same thing's going to happen for cities. Now, we've, we're, as, as business leaders, maybe things happen a little faster for us. We're maybe a few steps ahead of governments and, and uh, uh, universities and stuff like that, whereas the shoe guy knows because he's out of business already. You know, And I don't want to mean like we're smarter than universities or governments. What I mean is that our organizations are more sensitive to change right now. Um, and so like the YouTube phenomenon, like that is a new thing and we're all over it, right? I mean, we spend all day long on YouTube trying to optimize that for our business. Right. So Tim Ferriss happens to be one of, the big fans of, of this 1,000 true fans model. And the 1,000 true fans model states this. As a creator, such as an artist, musician, photographer, craftsperson, performer, entrepreneur, author, anyone producing art needs to only acquire 1,000 true fans to make a living. 1,000 true fans are people who are going to pay you $100 a year for your art, netting you $100,000 in top-line revenue or personal income, depending on how you organize your situation. Tim Ferriss has been sort of doing the interview circuit lately talking about 1,000 True Fans as a heuristic for startups, and I think he's right. He says, if you focus on a general market, you generally spend too much money, too much time, and you're going to find a broad market that is not really addressable. This, again, is the one thing, man. We see this all the time. Yes. It's way too general. This is important, especially online, and I'm quoting Mr. Ferris here. The only thing that will determine success or failure in the early stages is finding those 1,000 people. That's a pretty big endorsement from the Godfather. Yeah, buddy. And uh, I think of Wilco when I think 1,000 true fans. You know, Wilco is kind of like a niche band. They're a wholesale band. They're a band's band. Yeah. And uh, they they found themselves a little niche, a little indie niche. Uh, I guess these days maybe they're getting a little bit more popular, but they seem to have done the 1,000 true fans before this was uh, written by Kevin Kelly. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with this model. It's not as easy as it sounds, but the upside, the quality of it is that you get to visualize, right? You know, what does 1,000 people look like? I can imagine meeting 1,000 people. What could I give them that would be $100? But I think we can improve on this, and there's a lot of problems with it. Number one is it's a business model that's really focused on one-time fa- sales, right? Because you're going to get, you're probably in the info space or the software space, you're going to be launching that product, and then you're going to have to, like, a, a sack of money, 
right? And then you're going to have to do something next year. So depending on what your business model is, that might not scale that well for you, right? Right. Because you're going to spend your time serving those people who bought your product, or you're going to, you know, are you going to try to find a thousand new people or, you know, that's kind of tough. How are you going to reduplicate your efforts next year? I mean, if you're an artist and you write a novel every year, that could work. You're going to need more like five or 10,000 true fans. Right. I haven't read too many hundred dollar books. That's <laughs> <laughs> textbooks. And that's part of the problem with this model. So let's just talk about some ways that we could improve upon it. And again, a lot of people have been asking me lately about my stance on info products. And I'm going to get to that punchline at the end. But I do think you can do info products, but it's more of like V3, V4 of your business, year three or four of your business rather than year one. And we're going to get to some business models that are a little bit more higher friction, like 100 true customers. So what are 100 true customers? 100 true customers are customers that are willing to pay you $1 a day for access to products, services, or information, or maybe that's even you. Right? Maybe they'll pay you a dollar a day to have access to you or to your team or to your expertise or to your help desk. So that works out to about $40,000 a year in recurring revenue. So 100 true customers, again, are people that are willing to go on a subscription for a dollar a day. Right. Now, I think this is a much more higher friction business model. First off, you can imagine 100 people, right? A lot easier than you can imagine 1,000 people paying you for this mythical $100 thing. I like the idea of providing people with access to an experience for only a dollar a day. Yeah, and I like the idea of reoccurring revenue too, right? And that's uh, one of the problems that we're pointing out with uh, 1,000 true fans. I think there probably is a way to do reoccurring revenue with 1,000 true fans, but I think it's much easier when you're first starting out to do it with just 100. Yeah, and the idea there is that if you know that they're going to be renewing, you're going to be focused on what really grows businesses, which is increasing the lifetime value of the customers that you already have. So we call it layering the wedding cake, right? So you create this buying bed that's $40,000 in revenue, and then you can start to stack that cake up. Well, maybe people who are willing to pay you a dollar a day would be willing to pay you $5,000 a year for do, done for you services, or maybe they'll be willing to pay that for your consulting, or maybe you have a high-end service like a link building service, or maybe you're creating videos for them, or whatever your service is going to be, that's layering up the wedding cake of that. You're going to get to that $100,000 a year pretty quickly right. if you've got the $40,000 buying bed by improving the quality of services you're delivering to your already paying customers. And the, again, the, the reason this is different is that you're incentivized to serve them because they're already your customers. Right. And by the way, we do this with physical products too. So we have the standard bar at the at the portablebarcompany.com and then we've got these other bars and these other accessories and products that our existing customers buy from us right so we created a buying bed with a basic product and then we branched out from there so this isn't exclusive to info products right? not at all not at all i think this is, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit but let's start with let's let's like clarify the next level up in terms of friction which would be 10 true clients I think it's really important what you just said there about friction, right? Because a thousand true fans, there's not a lot of friction with fans a lot of times, right? It's only $100, right? right. They're only paying you $100 a year. They're not signing up for a subscription. So, you know, how many people do you need to touch in order to get those people in? You might have to touch 100,000 people and then 1% are really truly engaged enough to buy $100. Whereas I like the idea of, hey, you only need to find 100 people. Right. right to set a buying bed, and then you develop those 100 people into higher order 
people. But I think that actually, if you want a higher friction business model, I would start with 10 true clients. So what are 10 true clients? Those are people that would pay you $1,000 for you to generate a desired outcome. So 10 true clients, that would be 10 people paying you $1,000 a quarter. That's $40,000 a year as well. Right. So an example of that would be uh, like I could run a program that would say I can help you build an online business because I've done it, right? So if I were to take you through a 12-week course and get on the phone with you every Friday night after we'd done our coursework, would you pay me $1,000 to create the outcome that you're seeking? I think people would be hip to that, right? Yeah, I think so. so. that would be a, sort of a rolling revenue of $40,000 a year. Now, here's what I would do. Now, here's what I'm saying when I say flip that triangle. Because what most people are doing is they're starting with the blog and they're starting with the ebook or they're starting with the novel or they're starting with the book. That's too broad. And a lot of times, I think not only is it too broad, but it's too inexpensive too. So I like what we were talking about before was skin Seth in the Godin, game. Right, is skin in the game. Um, is specializing in having expensive products, right? So the thousand true customers heuristic is a great heuristic for finding your target market, but it's not the best model for monetization. A better model would be something like 10 true clients. Could you find a consulting model, for example, that you could get 10 true clients would be paying you $500 a month or $1,000 a quarter or something like that. That's your buying bed. And then here's the trick. When we flip the triangle, take those 10 true clients, so this can be 40 people annually, or maybe those 10 true clients would sign up every quarter. That's ideally that you develop something like that. They all go into either the help desk, the forum, the monthly mastermind call, the insiders meetup group, whatever it's going to be, that is your 100 true customers bed. Right. So that's how you flip the triangle, right? You start with the 10 true clients. You pop them in. Well, because you're one of my clients, you of course are going to be one of my customers. Right. And because of when you're, you're one of my customers, you're going to be one of my fans. Right. So the real way to get started with lower acquisition costs would be to flip the triangle. And instead of starting with the fans, you start with the clients, move them on to customers, and then that drips out to your fans. And I think a lot of people get nervous about this, right, Dan? Because that means instead of asking somebody for a very small amount of money, you have to ask them for a very large amount of money. Yes. People are going to be nervous about that. So how do, how do they solve that? Well, here's the thing. Like, what a lot of people do right now, they might say, I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer or I'm a construction management consultant and I really hate my job. So what I want to do is do something passive, right? I'm going to set up a website where I blog about what I do and I'm going to put up an ebook on the side or I'm going to launch something or anything. What I would suggest is think about it inverted like this. Who would be 10 true clients? Who are people that are willing to pay me $1,000 a quarter? What could I do as a lawyer? I can start brainstorming a lot of things that would fit that business model, right? Anybody who signs up to be one of my clients automatically becomes one of my customers for free. And I start to build out that business model. You get a portion of what the clients get as a customer. And that's a higher leveraged thing. Now, all of a sudden, you've got $80,000 in annual revenue, much of which is recurring. Right. Okay, so you continue to build out those things, and then occasionally you bundle all the stuff you've learned from serving those customers, and you put it out to your fans, and you charge a lower amount. That's a lower friction business model, but at that point, you can cash flow it, right? You could even use some of the money to hire somebody to generate those things in CROI. And by the way, then your little ebook becomes your lead generation tool. (laughs) I mean, look, we're not talking about anything new here, but we really want to put forward the business models, number one, so you can framework out how you 
you might achieve the outcomes you want to see in your business. And look, this applies at any level. Ian and I do these exercises every single day. And secondly, the idea that even if your goal is passive, you know, I, I know that people want that and that's fine. If you want to get the passive, flip the triangle. The higher friction you start with, the more likely you are to achieve that, quote, passive status. And look, I'm not going to be a naysayer. You can have a passive income business in the ways that we talk about that online. I have not touched some of our businesses for years. And, and, and same with you. And that's fine. That can happen. We were in the cockpit at the beginning, yes, driving yes. the ship. And yes. if you think you're going to hire a VA to execute all this stuff and be passive right out of the gate, well, give me a phone call and we'll interview you <laughs> on this that's podcast. That's probably a whole separate podcast, but yes, you're right. I think the way that you become passive is you do a lot of heavy lifting in the beginning. You hire people to run your business and then it becomes passive. So right? if you're going to do, that's the whole point. If you're going to do that heavy lifting, do it with the 10 true clients. Do not do it with the 1,000 true fans. Absolutely. All right. Let's get moving on to just the tips. Are we full of crap? I don't know. Come to episode 158 and let us know your thoughts. Uh, I love discussing with you. There's all kinds of back-channel discussions happening in the DC, happening in email, happening on the comments to this blog. You know, we talk about these ideas because we're interested in them. Yeah. And we want to improve them. So your critical feedback is more than welcome. Just a tips this week. If you want a copy of our real strategic operating document that we use for our publishing company. That's a company that employs three full-time employees and a few contractors. Check it out. We'll put it up at episode 158. You can download it, copy it, and use it yourself. I'm also going to have a video walkthrough training of how I use it to run the business. Awesome. All right. Music this week, Ian. It might already be planned because there's this important buildup that I want you all to feel. (laughs) This is um, by this French DJ named, I think it's Madeon or Madeon or Madeon. I don't know how they say it, but this kid is brilliant. Absolutely love his music. Let the beat build, as Lil Wayne said. Let the beat build, as Lil Wayne said. And don't play the outro when it really gets hot because I want people to actually feel motivated by it and jam out. We'll hope you'll be back here next week to jam out with us. This is the LBP. We'll see you next Thursday. Booyah. Thanks for listening. Don't be shy. We've got a mailing list. Check it out at lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Go there, get yourself signed up, and we'll keep you up to date on everything we do, plus give you immediate access to episodes 1 through 100 of the LBC. It is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We'll see you next Thursday morning. Triple J. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.